Previously on Disappeared in the Desert. The search for missing six-year-old Isabel Sellis continues for weeks. Neighbors, co-workers, even strangers join police in the search. It's pretty emotional. It's a co-worker's daughter. I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old myself. And it's really emotional thinking that something like this can happen. More than 2,000 tips have been investigated. It could be sightings, it could be a, a whole wide variety of things. I'm not going to get into every single particular tip, but, but they're varied, they're broad, and uh, yeah, a lot of them don't have much value to them. As the case gets cold. Everything that we've asked about that, those surveillance cameras to the police, and they tell us, oh, well, it takes a long time to go through. Well, here we are four years later. Have we ever gotten anything? Because there was something on those videotapes. I know there was. You're listening to a KOLD News 13 original podcast. I'm Bud Foster. And I'm Shaylee Sanders. This is Disappeared in the Desert. Somebody out there someplace has information about this case, and it's that key piece of information that we're missing. Weeks, months, even years pass by in Tucson without a sign if Isabel Salas is alive or dead. All the while, speculation spreads across the community on who could have been responsible for such a crime, theories on if it was a stranger, a member of the Salas family, or someone the family knows that abducted Isabel. We're going to break down some of the arguments people made on each of those theories. First, the biggest spotlight, was on Isabel's father, Sergio Salas. He was the one who discovered her missing on the morning of April 21, 2012 and called police. Speculation began when people heard the call that he placed to 911. Take a listen. Why do you think she was abducted? I have no idea. We woke up this morning. I went to go get her up for her baseball game, and she's gone. I woke up my, my sons. I, we looked everywhere in the house, and my oldest son noticed that her window was wide open and the screen was laying in the backyard. We've looked all around the house. Is mom there also? And she had just left for work. I just called her, and I told her to get her butt home. <laughs> there are several things about that call which raise concern. First, Sergio immediately saying Isabel was abducted. An expert on nonverbal communication and detecting deception told KOLD News 13 at the time pointed out that Sergio's use of that word. If somebody is missing, would you initially jump to they've been abducted? I think it would probably be, you'd probably say I'm not sure what happened and you wouldn't say, you wouldn't go straight to the abduction. I asked retired Tucson police captain Richard Harper about this. Again, he was not part of the Isabel Sellis investigation, but he gave insight on missing children's cases. How often of the cases um, that when somebody calls and says, my child has been missing or abducted, and in this particular case, we're talking about the father used the word abducted right from the very beginning, right. which casts suspicion upon him. Right. How often is it, the family or a family member who is the perpetrator right. in this particular case, if in the, any case. Right. If, if the child is between, say, uh, a, a newborn and, say, five years old, the chances are much higher that it's a family member or a close friend of the family that's been involved in the abduction. 
So, so the police know 60, 65% of the time, 70% of the time. If it's a child that's, you know, in that five to six year old age range, that there's a strong possibility based upon research done by Kathleen Hyde and other uh, social scientists and criminologists that chances are that it's a family member. It could be grandpa, could be uncle. While Sergio remained calm on the call, even heard laughing while talking to the dispatcher, Rebecca was more emotional. When I went to work this morning at seven and um, I just, and I didn't even come and check out her. I said, I'll come and check out her. Okay. All right, just take a deep breath, okay? The expert on nonverbal communication and detecting deception said the contrast in the couple's emotions raises questions. It's a red flag when we see that the two of them are not on the same page and we see that he's so aloof during a situation where you would expect him to be so destroyed at this situation. Let's learn a little bit more about Sergio Celis. All of this is based off of interviews and statements made to investigators and documented in public records. Family friends say Sergio is very well respected in the opera course and is a very good musician. That was a clip of Sergio singing at a concert held in honor of Isabel. Those same family friends say he had a little bit of an issue with drinking before Isabel was born, when he was struggling, wishing he had done more with his music. Rebecca described her husband to police as antisocial. She says he's not really antisocial, but he does his own thing. He's polite with her brothers, but that's about it. Rebecca's brothers had similar comments about Sergio. Her brother Mark told police that Sergio keeps to himself and doesn't show emotions. Mark says there's not been much interaction between Sergio and the family, but he's always been a calm person. As retired Captain Harper mentioned, Isabel is around the age where chances are higher that it's a family member or a close friend of the family involved in the abduction based upon research. Isabel was home when she was suspectedly abducted, and her family members were the only other people there at the time. Sergio was the last one to see Isabel alive, going into her room and kissing her goodnight around 11 p.m. He was then the first person who went in to wake her up for the baseball game around 8 o'clock in the morning and then call police. His actions were criticized. During an interview with police, a friend of Sergio says he came over at 11 p.m. the day Isabel was discovered missing and stayed until 2 or 3 in the morning. He says Sergio told him the front door was found unlocked. In a 25-page report from one of Tucson's police detectives, it details Rebecca and Sergio went to a police station the day after Isabel's disappearance to speak with detectives. The officer wrote that Sergio asked him when it would be appropriate for them to get back to their normal life because their sons had baseball practice. While Rebecca was asked if they thought Isabel was alive, Sergio answered, it has been over 24 hours and that isn't good. A detective told the officer Sergio's results to a polygraph test that day were deceptive. He stated Rebecca's results were truthful. The next day, a Tucson police officer documented in a report he was in line at a bagel shop to order food when Mark Tronzinger approached him. The officer says Mark Tronzinger told him he coaches baseball with a little girl's father and he knows him well. 
Frontinger reportedly told the officer that something didn't seem right about what was going on and alluded that he believed Sergio was involved in some way. In a later interview with KULD about his statements, Trontiger claims his conversation with the officer was misquoted. However it played out, I can just simply tell you that there are several uh, misstatements that have been put down in this report about either what I said or what I alluded to. According to police documents, Sergio was spotted meeting someone at a hotel behind a Denny's five days after her disappearance. An officer received information attributed to the wire that the person was documented asking Sergio if he was followed, and he answered no. That person then drove Sergio, doing heat runs and successful in losing surveillance officers. The phone number of the person he met with was, at the time, involved in two different immigration and customs enforcement investigations that included large amounts of weapons and drug sales. Another Tucson Police Department briefing says surveillance saw Sergio meet with another man at the park. Sergio left the park and moved duffel bags in a suitcase from his car into Robert's house. On April 29, 2012, just days after Isabel's disappearance, an officer documented that in a briefing, they were notified about unusual activity at Sergio's parents' homes, where the family was staying. At three in the morning, a pickup truck pulled up alongside the home. Someone got into the truck and went to the seller's home. There, someone got out of the truck and into a Nissan SUV that pulled up behind the truck. The Nissan then kept driving to a house the officer says is a known drug house. Sergio admitted to officers to using marijuana, specifically for stress, he said. He says he only used it when the kids were not immediately present. Sergio says he meant to smoke the night of Isabel's disappearance, but it got late and he fell asleep. Family members were asked about Sergio's anger. Mark tells police that he's observed Sergio's behavior changed from the beginning of the gathering to the end. Mark claims there have been instances where Sergio's gotten a little violent and he's had to stop him. He's not sure if Sergio has had any professional help with that. When asked more about the violence he mentioned, Mark clarifies that it's not physical, but maybe verbal. He says there was a time when Sergio started yelling at his mother. During a search of the Celis home, officers say they found writing on the door jamb of Isabel's closet. You may remember the family says she did not share a bedroom with anyone else. The writing appeared to be from a child. Some of the words include nothing, bad day, dad didn't, b-day, bad day, I don't like dad. Wording on the outside of the closet said bad dad. These writings were brought up to Rebecca Sellis during a polygraph test. She then started to cry and asked why Isabel never told her. She then wondered why the boys never told her, saying if she had known, she would have taken them away from there. A friend of the Sellis family confided in a Department of Public Safety officer about something that was generated into a lead for a follow-up. Tucson police say they learned information about Sergio that raised a red flag, prompting them to get Child Protective Services officials to talk to the Sellis family. In an interview with police, one of Isabel's brothers told officers Sergio hit him in the past. During a separate polygraph test, one of the sons stated when his father used to drink, he would get mad and start cursing. He says his dad hit him twice in the head, one time with an electrical cord, which left a scar on his forehead, and the second time with his fist. 
After the son's polygraph test where he claimed his father hit him, Rebecca said she didn't want to see Sergio. She was returned to her kids and called her brother to be with her. Police called CPS. Here's what Tucson police said about CPS's involvement at the time. We just felt that it was important to share the information that we had with Child Protective Services. They came out, talked with our detectives and with the Solis family, and then they entered into the agreement. A voluntary agreement was reached between CPS, Sergio, and Rebecca to restrict Sergio's access to his sons. This wasn't the first contact between the Celis family and CPS. Rebecca told police in January of 2012, one of the boys was washing dishes and left a big glass with lots of soap on it. Sergio went to grab a glass of water out of that same cup and drank out of it, then scolded the son for leaving soap in it. Rebecca says there was laughter. The son told friends the story the next day and one of their parents told CPS about it. If Sergio was involved in the disappearance of his daughter, did Rebecca know? Did she play a role in Isabel's disappearance or is she covering up for Sergio? Sergio and Rebecca were criticized for taking days to publicly speak out on the search for Isabel. But the family stated in several separate interviews with KOLD throughout the years as to why. We don't want the focus to be taken off Isabel by us being in front of the cameras or by the media. We are here today to play, to plea for a safe return of our baby girl Isabel. Although they never really told us not to speak to the media, they were very specific as far as, you know, being careful those first few days. Don't get out there right away. And then after those first few days, they, they were even a little bit more, you know, okay, uh, those first few days are over, okay. They were always leaving it to us right from the get-go. They never completely said, don't do it. They didn't ever say that. But they did advise us, at least for the first few days of the investigation, to, you know, just let us work, let us get this going. And then even initially when we first put out our statement that we wanted uh, Lieutenant Pacheco to, to speak for us, that was a step that I felt in the, in the appropriate direction. But even seeing that, that first press conference, my gosh, we were a mess. We still are a mess. But we are gathering some strength. We are realizing the importance of this. We didn't want the initial focus on us. We wanted the focus on the investigation on Isabel. We wanted to be there, right there. Rebecca and Sergio appeared together on the Today Show at the beginning of May, and KOLD News 13 talked to a body language expert, Susan Constantine, to see what she was picking up on. This is what she said at the time. I think mom is genuine. I think dad knows a little bit more. I gotta tell you, there's good reason why he's suspect. I'm not saying that he has anything to do with it, but I think he needs to come clear and, and tell us what he knows and be more forthright and not dodge around the questions. Days later, Sergio and Rebecca Salas went to the main police station for another polygraph test. According to the detective's report, Rebecca was asked two relevant questions, both pertaining to her suspecting Sergio was involved in the disappearance. She said she did not believe he was involved. The document says she did not pass the polygraph test. During Sergio's test, he was asked about whether he was home the entire night Isabel went missing. 
His test was found to be deceptive, according to an officer there at the time of the questioning. Here's a reminder of what Sergio told dispatchers the morning of April 21st. Has she ever tried to sneak out of a window or anything? Oh, no. Have you guys been having any weird phone calls, anything like that, somebody hanging around? No. We got home late from uh, my son's baseball game, mm-hmm. you know, about 10.30 last night. <clears throat> Everyone took their showers, and they all went to bed. I even was in the living room watching uh, the Diamondbacks game at midnight, mm-hmm. and I fell asleep. And I never heard anything weird, so I was, like, just on the other side of the wall from her. If Isabel was abducted, and it was through the window found open the next morning, what are the chances of Sergio not hearing it when he shares a wall with her bedroom? There was a screen on the window that was found bent on the ground, which means that was damaged overnight at some point. During an interview with investigators, an officer documented Sergio reportedly asked to be hypnotized or given truth serum. The police documents state, after detectives told him he could leave, Sergio asked why they weren't arresting him and where he was supposed to go. KOLD asked both Sergio and Rebecca their response to community members thinking they were behind Isabel's disappearance. Here's what they told us. What do you say directly to the people who are assuming in some shape or form that you played a role in your daughter's disappearance? Nothing. I mean, I I really don't know what what to answer to that because other than you're wrong and, and I can't say too much. Again, I'm afraid of saying anything uh, as far as the investigative, but uh, point blank, I guess that's the, the best answer I can come up with. We don't have anything to hide, so nothing. go for it. Say what you want to say, but in the end, we are confident we had nothing to do with it, and, and go ahead, go for it. And the people who know us, who, who have known us as a, um, as a family, know us and know that we have nothing to do with this. So who did? Was it another family member? It's a question TBD was asked consistently. We've been examining every possibility, whether it be extended family members, friends. Sergio and Rebecca told investigators their suspicions of a family member involved. They never said his name publicly, but we learned through public documents his name is Justin and he's a cousin of Rebecca. At the time, the Celluses said the person had a troubled past and that they knew he had a key to their home because he used to live there for about a year. But police records gave us more insight about the family's suspicions and who Justin is. Rebecca's brother Mark told investigators they didn't see much of Justin growing up since he lived in Florida and they lived in Douglas at the time. He says Justin would probably travel to Douglas maybe once every three or four years to visit. He claims Justin left Florida, moved to Washington, then to Tucson for a better life after his grandfather died. It seems like Justin and Sergio got along pretty well, according to Mark. Mark told investigators they both liked to drink and smoke marijuana. While living with the Celluses, Justin slept in Isabel's room, and she slept on a mattress in the parents' room due to nightmares. But then there was a falling out between Justin and Sergio. Sergio told police that Justin moved out of their home possibly in June of 2011, after the two had gone to Reddington Pass in April. If you're not from the Tucson area, that road is a pass between the Catalina Mountains and the Rincon Mountains. That's part of the Coronado National Forest Land. Sergio says while at Reddington Pass, he got into an argument with Justin because they were drinking and Justin left him in the desert. The Sellis family also says tension grew when Justin talked to reporters, including KOLD News 13, when Isabel disappeared. 
We actually played clips from that interview in our first episode, but here's a recap of what he told us on that day. She's a typical, you know, real sweet, uh, you know, six-year-old girl, six going on seven, um, you know, runs around and plays with her friends and everything, uh, kind of sticks to her own, doesn't really talk to strangers. We need her home safe, safe and sound, you know. We like to hope that she just went for a walk and is going to come back you know, unharmed. Just all trying to figure out how, what went wrong, how it happened, and, and what we need to do to get her back. Rebecca told officers she heard that Justin drove by their house at 4 a.m. the morning Isabel disappeared. Then just days after her disappearance, Justin left Tucson, went back to Washington, and reportedly hired a lawyer. That's what a friend of Sergio told police in an interview. The Sellis family hired a private investigator by that point, and KLD News 13 talked to him. His name is Jerry Snyder. He was a federal agent for 25 years with the DEA and an investigator with the National Centers for Missing and Exploited Children. He talks about some of the family's suspicions. For me personally, uh, just the fact that, uh, you know, he left town within about five days after um, Isabel went missing ships his car to Florida, takes off to Washington to stay with a relative for a period of time. And then the fact that, you know, he doesn't want to talk to the police and uh, uh, just basically gets out of Dodge. To me, that was a red flag. Why would he leave town so quickly? It could be sim uh, something as simple as not, um, as protecting themselves from something, something else or from actually something that happened, that, that they're involved in. And just to find out, you know, what they know, um, could either open or close that door, you know, of us, you know, going the right direction to find Isa, or knowing that that, that that door does not lead us anywhere and it let us go someplace different. Jerry Snyder told KLD News 13 at the time that Justin was with two other people the night Isa went missing. Surveillance from several locations confirms they were together that night, but there's a six-hour window between 1.30 and 7.30 a.m. in which the group is unaccounted for. Snyder said at the time he believed one of the three, a minor, may have gone home after being kicked out of the bar, but Justin and the other person stayed together. I'd like him to come and answer and, you know, just come and answer the questions that everybody else has been um, been questioned about, you know. Um, all my brothers, my friends, my fam all my family, they've been questioned up to the utmost degree um, about things involving the case, and, and he's the only one who has it. But why would Justin, or really any other family member, abduct an innocent six-year-old girl from her bedroom in the middle of the night? Mark, Rebecca's brother, told police about one of the family's theories. Justin may have brought someone over to the seller's house while living with them and owed them money. The person possibly thought he could still be staying in Isabel's room, and instead of finding Justin there, they found Isabel and took her as collateral. It's worth noting the family had the same theory about Sergio. On May 3, 2012, the Tucson Police Department interviewed Justin. Here's some of the highlights from that interview. He denied involvement in Isabel's disappearance, admits to smoking marijuana with Sergio while living in their home, and claims Sergio has a problem with everyone in the family. As for who Justin thinks was involved, he felt that somehow Sergio played a role and doesn't believe Isabel could have been taken out the window. He says if anyone entered the home, stranger or family, the dogs would have barked because they bark at anything. As Sergio and Rebecca mentioned, the dogs did not bark the night Isabel disappeared. But you may remember the neighbor who said she did hear dogs barking. Either way, 
Is the behavior of a pet impactful in a case? We asked retired Captain Richard Harper about this. The dog barking really helps to establish the timeline, but it's not the dog that establishes the timeline. It's going to be the witness, because the witness is going to be looking at the clock. Oh, my God, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Why is Fido barking? They're going to look out the window and see something. Okay, so it's, it's still going to be the human being, the witness, who's going, to be, who's going to be establishing the timeline. The dog barking may or may not mean anything. And so for detectives, it's not, again, um, uh, it may have some importance, but it doesn't carry enough importance uh, from the perspective of knowing exactly what happened as compared to a human being seeing what's going on. Two years after Isabel's disappearance, police asked Mark what the family theories are about the disappearance. He said at the time the family wonders how the person or people who took her knew the dogs would be inside at the time. There was no dog in Isabel's room that night, but most of the time there was at least one dog in her room with her. So how did they know this specific night there wasn't one? Robert, Rebecca's other brother, says Isabel had been taken by someone that knew the house, was watching the house, or had been inside the house. He said it was just within a month that Isabel had started going into a room and sleeping there. He thinks the window is so short that it had to be someone who knew the house. Sergio and Rebecca criticized the police department on their investigation, claiming they were focusing too much on them and the family as suspects than finding Isabel. They did so much digging right here in our house, right here between me and Becky, into our family. You know, we'd already been stripped away from our little daughter and we were violated all over again. And we're hoping that this time around, Maybe someone else can get the attention. Retired Captain Harper says officers need to keep an open mind when investigating this kind of case. Police should never speculate in investigations. They should always stick to what are the facts in front of them. Um, you're trying to build a story to try and understand what happened, but you never speculate uh, about who the individuals are that might be uh, persons of interest. You let the evidence point to whoever that person's going to be. As a police officer, you have all these different kinds of experiences that you're bringing to the table. But you also understand that when a child is, say, from the age of five or six all the way up through about 12, that might be a problem. That could be a problem, and it might be a stranger, or it might be an acquaintance of the family. It's possible that it's not someone the family knows. According to a Reuters report, the FBI said from 2010 through 2017, the number of people under the age of 21 that have been abducted by strangers in the United States has ranged from a high of 384 in 2011 to a low of 303 in 2016, with no clear directional trend. Let's go through the known evidence that points towards this. First, mentioned during the 911 dispatch call by a member of the Sellis family, Isabel's window was discovered open and the screen ripped off, which is a change from what the family noticed the night before. Sergio told officers that the window was closed when he went into Issa's room to tuck her in. The next-door neighbor, whose bedroom window is just feet away from Isabel's, told KOLD at the time she heard noises around 6 in the morning. My dogs were going crazy. Their dogs were going nuts. And um, I remember briefly waking up and hearing male voices outside my bedroom window, but it was light outside. I didn't really think anything of it. And then I just went back to sleep. And then at 8 o'clock, I got a knock on the door saying that she was missing. I don't think that they were police. I mean, I, I wasn't really paying attention. You know, I was really tired. But 
but I, I don't think it was. We also have the shoe impressions documented in police reports by responding officers. They were discovered in the dirt just behind the Sellis home. The shoe marks were seen on top of an electrical box directly behind the house and then in the dirt in the alleyway just south of the house. If it was a member of the family, especially someone who lived inside of the home, why would they need to stand on top of an electrical box behind the house? The Salas family was willing to do whatever it takes in hopes of getting information needed to find their daughter. Sergio and Rebecca talked to several psychics. One suggested that the person who took Isabel was a Hispanic man, 20 to 30 years old, and knows the family. She said Isa didn't go through the window. She was coerced into going out the door. Another told Sergio there were two men and two women involved in Isabel's disappearance. At least one is a relative. They won't ask for ransom because they don't want to get caught. They're waiting for reward money to get high enough. The Tucson Police Department say they don't use psychics in missing persons cases. We don't ever call in psychics to help out with, with cases. Uh, we never have, and I don't think that's a practice that we're ever going to start. Richard Harper, who used to work for the Tucson Police Department, had a similar response. Do you use psychics? Have um, you used psychics? No, I've never used a psychic in... In, in the 34 years that I, that I worked for the Tucson Police Department, I never used a psychic. Why not? Um, because uh, here's the thing. There's no scientific um, basis for which you can give them uh, a level of certainty that they could testify in court. So, I mean, you could not, uh, a, a psychic could not go into the courtroom and testify that this dead person talked to him because, well, that's hearsay, right? Because it's one person telling another person. And the other thing is, is that you, there's no way to check that information because the person who's telling them this stuff is deceased. Do you regret not using psychics for some of your cases? No, uh, simply because uh, it's, uh, I've never had a psychic say to me something that uh, was uh, material enough for me to want to use that as part of the investigation. I mean, you take the information. I mean, you don't just disregard. You take it and you take a look at it. Is it information that you already have? If it is, well, then you don't really need the psychic. But Jerry Snyder, the Celis' private investigator, said psychics have helped find at least 57 missing people through his organization. Best put to me by a New York detective, he says, I'll take information from the devil as long as I can find this little girl that he was looking for. Perhaps the most well-known psychic the Celis' talked to was Alison Dubois. She's a world-renowned psychic who's helped authorities solve dozens of cases across the country. She's also the inspiration behind that hit television show, Medium. She wrote up a profile for the Sellis family. Here's what she told KLD News 13 about the profile back in 2014. When I went into her room, the first thing I heard was, it's not my dad. She felt it was someone close to the family that knew the layout of the house that snuck in through Isabel's window and snatched her. And it felt like somebody maybe on the periphery, which can be a cousin or a friend. Several psychics also submitted their own tips to police. While their exact theories varied, there was a similarity between some of them about it being a sex abuser or offender that lives close to the Sellis family. You may remember Tucson police went door to door and talked to all registered sex offenders within a few mile radius of the Sellis home. None of them were named as suspects. 
Next time on Disappeared in the Desert, a break in the case. Well, this case has been actively pursued over the last five years. Um, it has been continuously worked since the date of her disappearance. So we have investigators that are still um, very engaged in this, and obviously their work continues now with this new information. But is that enough to help investigators determine who's behind Isabel's disappearance? Disappeared in the Desert is a KOLD News 13 original podcast hosted by Shaylee Sanders and Bud Foster. Special thanks to our editor, Jesse Zoller, writer and executive producer, Colleen Menadier, digital content producer, Mia Courtright, and executive producer of daily content, Michael Cooper. For more information about this case, visit KOLD.com. <laughs>